Good morning. Thanks for uh, worshiping with us this morning online and down in F3 as well. Glad you are here. We're wrapping up our study of the book of Acts. Um, we begin this, uh, this morning um, in chapter 28, the very last chapter of the book of Acts. And uh, we begin, like we ended last week, on the island of Malta. The island of Malta. A little speck in the Mediterranean Sea, about 18 miles long and 8 miles wide. Uh, it was, um, it was uh, about 80 years ago, it was bombed out of oblivion almost, to oblivion. Um, if you notice, Malta is situated between Italy and North Africa. And it was, um, it was a, a hot spot. It was one of the most bombed pieces of real estate in World War II. The Nazis desperately wanted this island. And so they dropped, um, the, the first two years, 1940-42, uh, they dropped tons and tons of bombs on Malta to try to bomb the people of Malta into submission. It was a British protectorate, and uh, for about, I think it was, I think they hold the record of having the most bombs dropped on them, 154 consecutive days, 6,700 tons of bombs dropped on them. All told, during that two-year siege of Malta, over 15,000 bombs were dropped on Malta. Now, leading the Maltese people and the, and the British troops was um, a man by the name of Lieutenant General William Dobby. Very interesting man, a very revered man by the Maltese people. He was a, a devout uh, follower of Jesus Christ, born-again devout follower of Jesus, part of what was called the, the Plymouth Brethren Assemblies, which is, a, a, again, a very uh, biblically-oriented um, denomination, group of folks, um, highly respected this man. In fact, he was entitled, he was, they, they called him God's original honest man. And during this two-year siege of Malta, he went on and prayed with the people. He held Bible studies. He kept pointing people to trust the Lord. He just was a, a, a solid anchor of, of hope and faith for the people. Um, he was uh, um, loved, he was listened to, and he had a real passion for God and the people. And he just exuded a confidence of the people. Uh, he told the people over and over again, Malta will triumph over the powers of darkness. And indeed, it did. It did. General Dobby left an indelible impression on the, on the people of, uh, of uh, Malta, as did another man about 1,900 years before, the Apostle Paul, who was shipwrecked on that very same island as we saw last week. So take your Bibles and turn with me to um, Acts chapter 28. We're going to look at the kind of the first section uh, today, starting in verse 1. I'm reading here from the New American Standard Version, Acts chapter 28. The, the Apostle Paul, the entourage of 276 people from, as we saw last week, had been shipwrecked on the island. And it says, and when they had been brought safely through, 
Then we found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us ex extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire. They received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat, fastened itself to his hand, and when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. Now they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but after they had waited a long time and seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say he must be a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the, the leader, the leading man of the island, probably the governor by the name of Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed over him, he laid hands on him and healed him. Well, verse 9, after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks and of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. This is, this is one of those feel-good passages. I mean, we've had... Uh, uh, Paul in prison, we've had uh, uh, warnings of, of uh, attempts of murder on Paul, we've had the, the horrendous uh, uh, excursion on the sails of the Mediterranean Sea and then the storm and the shipwreck. But you come to Malta and there's just this feel good, the, the, the shipwrecked weary souls as they drag their wet and cold carcasses out of the water. They're met by these people who just are gracious. They're kind. They start a fire. They warm them. They feed them. They, they take care of them. It's what theologians call common grace. These people were not followers of Jesus, but God in His kindness and just common grace um, moved upon these people to take care of these uh, storm-tossed, uh, uh, shipwrecked travelers. It was God's grace being operative. It's a different feel to the story, even with the viper incident. Now, there's an interesting account that Luke records. Here's Paul being servant-minded. The great apostle Paul, what is he doing? He's out picking up sticks to help build the fire. He's serving. Unfortunately, in those sticks was probably a hibernating viper, a poisonous snake, and we've got to realize this is um, probably in early December, maybe. It's cold, it's wet, here's the snake and these sticks. He picks up a pile of sticks, no harm, they comes over to the fire, fire warms it up, all of a sudden the snake comes alive, boom, he latches himself onto Paul's hands. And... Um, it's like, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. So there is this snake hanging on Paul's hands. And it says in verse 4 that the, the natives, when they saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer. And though he's been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Some of our translations, the word justice is capitalized. Justice. Because in Greek mythology, um, a daughter of Zeus, there was a daughter of Zeus named Justice. 
who, uh, whose uh, role in the mythology was to seek out and punish wrongdoers. Um, it was also common belief that at that time that, that uh, the sea was a place where, um, where vengeance was meted out on, on um, bad people. And so they see these prisoners uh, from the shipwreck, Paul being one of them, and they survived the vengeance of the sea, but justice, the, the mythological daughter of Zeus, is now working on Paul. He's not going to get away from justice. And so they're waiting for him to drop over dead or um, you know, swell up and pass away. Uh, nothing happens. Nothing happens to this supposed now murderer, this bad guy. Verse 6 says, again, they were expecting this to happen, but after they had waited a long time, nothing unusual happened to Paul. They changed their minds and began saying, well, then he must be a god. That's almost humorous. He shakes the thing off into the fire, and, uh, and they change their minds about who Paul is. And then we come to verse 7 and 8. This leading man of the island of Malta, Publius, welcomes them, entertains them graciously again. Uh, his father is not well. Paul goes and visits, visits him and heals him. And the result is the word gets out and many people from the island who are sick come. And they are healed, or actually the word is cured, which makes some commentators think that, remember Luke was a doctor? that there is Luke working there, his, uh, his uh, medical work on them, and, and Paul is maybe healing some, and there's this uh, combined effort. And they're blessing the people of Malta who have blessed them, who have encouraged them, who took care of them. And so there's this reciprocal thing taking place. Um, and it says in verse 9 and 10, after this had happened, the rest of the people came, and then verse 10 adds, and they honored us with many marks of respect. That's a word that probably denotes even financial. They, they paid them. They, they gave them money. They gave them material things. They blessed them. Many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. Um, again, Luke is involved there. They honored us with many financial blessings as Luke was doing his medical work, as Paul was doing his spiritual work, as they were blessing the people as they had been blessed. Well, it says after, in verse 11, after three months we set sail in another Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island, which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. Um, Three months of blessing on Malta. The winter weather is over. This is probably end of February now, early March. Um, the seas are calm, and Luke writes we, they're ready to set sail for Rome. There's another Alexandrian grain ship. Talked about that last week. The one that had shipwrecked on Malta. Uh, Italy depended on the grain and the food from Egypt, and so there, here was another huge Alexandrian, big Alexandrian grain ship that had harbored there in Malta. They're able to secure passage on there. And um, Luke makes this interesting observation. 
The carved masthead of this Alexandrian grain ship says it had the twin brothers. And in some of our translations, it actually uses the terms or the words Castor and Pollux, the, known as the, the heavenly twins. Again, this is, it, this is a, a mythical um, Oh, a mythical belief that um, Zeus had these twin sons who were the guardians of the sea, who they, they were the navigational gods, Castor and Pollux. And so this Alexandrian ship had carved in their masthead these, these gods, Castor and Pollux, the twins of Zeus. Um, it's almost, I, 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 I don't know why Luke necessarily... In, recorded that, it stuck out to his mind, this divine inspiration, Luke puts that in there. I mean, he doesn't talk about the previous Alexandrian ship that shipwrecked and that, uh, ma uh, the, the master head of that, but he includes it here. And I, I don't know for sure, but it's almost, it's, I think it's almost, Luke is pointing out this irony. Who has been in charge of this whole voyage, this whole journey of the Apostle Paul to Rome? God Almighty. And it's almost ironic. Now, he, he, he boards a ship that is, uh, from the sailor's perspective, is under the uh, guidance and protection of Castor and Pollux, the mythological sons of Zeus. And Lucas saying, no, we're going to get to Rome safely by Almighty God. It says in verse 12, after we put in at, uh, at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Petuli. And there, it says, we found some brethren, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And he continues in verse 15 and says, the brethren, when they heard about us, came there from as far away as the market of Appius, which was about, say, 40 miles south of Rome. They met us there at the three inns, or the three taverns, another um, Roman um, way station on the Appian Road, that those, one of those famous Roman roads. It was about 30 miles south of Rome. Anyway, they came and met us, Luke writes. And when Paul, Paul saw them, he thanked God, and he took courage. And when he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. And so Paul finally reaches Rome. You've got to go back to a lot of chapters, chapter 19 of Acts, where we read where Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and, and Achaia. And he said, after I've been there, after I've been to Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. Lord, back in Acts chapter 19, it was Paul purposed in his heart, I'm going to Rome. That's where God was going to go to take him, to, uh, to the people that he'd written a letter to three years before, the Roman epistle. I want to come there, he said in Romans chapter 1. I want to impart some spiritual gift to you that we can be mutually encouraged by one another. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 10, 11, 12 in there. I want to come to Rome. I want, to, I want us to be mutually encouraged well, he finally came to Rome. Not necessarily the way he thought he'd going to go and all the travels and imprisonments and all that, but he's in Rome. And he's been met by believers. 
and his heart has been encouraged. I, again, I mentioned this passage, I think, is a feel-good passage. It teaches us about hospitality and, and being encouraged and being encouragers about uh, thinking of others. Even, even the Maltese people who were not followers of Jesus, they started a fire. They, they cared for the people, the shipwrecked people. They fed them. The, the head of the island entertained them and, and um, gave them gifts and honored them. Of course, Paul and Luke and maybe a few other believers reciprocated and blessed them back as well. Uh, but this is a passage about the difference that encouragement makes. He comes to Rome and he's encouraged by the believers. Um, the letter to the Corinthian church that Paul wrote a um, number of years before this it talks about, as he gives the closing greetings, a family that, the family of Stephanos, that he said were, were great encouragers to him. You see, we can either be encouragers or we can be discouragers, right? We can either bring blessing or we can bring cursings to people. Well, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, there's this family called Stephanos that um, they were encouragers and a model of encouragement. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I just want to mention this quickly by way of application. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15 says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, or Stephanos, that they were the, they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, and that you also be in subjection to such and to everyone who helps in work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanos and Fortunatus and uh, Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they refreshed my spirit and yours, and therefore acknowledge such men. Uh, Paul concludes this Corinthian epistle, he highlights this family, Stephanus, a model for us today, 2,000 years later. Here was a family. They were the first fruits of Achaia, first believers in Corinth. Um, not an easy city to become a believer in. The evil of Corinth, um, the debauchery of Corinth. And here is Stephanos and his family. They hear Paul. They get saved. And years later, as Paul is writing this, um, they come and they meet with him, and he's encouraged by them. They're faithful First believers, they continue steadfastly. They're consistent, bold in their faith. And it's clear that this family has some, some heart of Jesus residing within them. Not only do they have a bold faith, it says there in verse uh, 15 and 16 that they are uh, dedicated servants to the Lord. Dedicated servants. They were the first fruits. And they've devoted themselves, the last part of verse 15, they've devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. They were chartered members of the Servants to the Saints Committee. <laughs> devoted. It's a word, actually, it's a military term that means to align oneself, to order, to order, be ordered under, to be uh, aligned under. What they did is they knew their giftedness. 
and they knew that they best were kind of behind the scenes servants. And so they, they ordered themselves under that role of they appointed themselves as servants of the church. And Paul is saying something here about their dedication. They voluntarily placed themselves, ordered themselves to be servants of the saints. And verse 16 offers some other insights. It says that um, be subject to such people, to everyone who helps in the work and labors. It's a very intense word, to labor, to, to, um, to work to, with blood, sweat, and tears, to strive, to labor for the service of the saints, even to the point of weariness, a strong term. Here was Stephanus and his family, consistent, bold in their faith, devoted to labor in the service of the saints. And I can almost see them now in that early church. They have a small group in their home. Now, they're not leading it. That's not necessarily their gifts. But they open up their home, and the believers come in for a study together and worship together with other fellow believers. But it's Stephanos and his family who are behind the scenes serving and making sure people have extra food on their plates or are their, are their water cups filled again? Is there anything you need? They, they probably have washed their feet when they first came into their home. They are spent and being spent for the benefit of the people. When someone in the church became ill, it was Stephanus and his family that would go bring a meal or, or visit them and, or maybe even take care of them when they needed to be taken care of. When weary Christian travelers were passing through and the Elders of the church would say, hey, we're looking for someone. Before they could finish the sentence, it was Stephanus and his family raising their hand and saying, hey, we'll, we got extra room. We love to have saints in our home. They were charter members of the Serving the Saints Society. Models of faith, devoted to service, and great encouragers. Verse 17 and 18 again, Paul says, I rejoice when they came to visit me. Why? Verse 18, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. They have refreshed my spirit. It's the same word, by the way, that is used in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus said, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you refreshment to your soul. Same word. It's almost as if Paul is making the equation here that we are never more like Jesus than when we refresh the souls, the spirits of other people. We give them rest because of their encouragement. For the Apostle Paul, when he thought of Stephanus and his family, he had to have a smile on his face because here was a people that he engaged with great fellowship and enjoyable conversations, conversations that when he left, just left him kind of encouraged and built up and refreshed in his spirit, deeds of service that was done, ways to encourage. How can I serve you? Is there anything you need? Encouragers. When was the last time you had a cup of coffee with someone or a meal with someone and you get up and you leave and you walk away with a smile on your face saying, you know, I, I just feel so encouraged. 
I sure enjoy being around those people. It's like every time we're around them, we just leave refreshed. We, we just feel spiritually soulish rested. When was the last time someone felt like that when they left you or me? Encouragement. Larry Crabb wrote a book, one of his earlier books, entitled Encouragement, the Key to Caring. It's a great little book, easy read. He writes about how uh, when he was a, a young kid, he, he stuttered. He had a real stutter problem. His L's and his P's, he just couldn't get through. And when he was in ninth grade, he was elected the student class president, which meant that he had to go before the school and give this uh, kind of this uh, swearing-in ceremony. I, Larry Crabb of Plymouth White Marsh School, do hereby promise. Well, needless to say, he butchered that horrendously. I, Larry Crabb of Plymouth, you could just hear how it went. He was mortified, and he left that setting saying, I will never, never do public speaking, ever. Well, he writes about the rest of the story. Let me read it to you. It's a couple paragraphs, so here it goes. He writes, a short time later, our church celebrated the Lord's Supper. It was a Sunday morning worship service, and it was customary in our congregation to encourage young men to enter into the privilege of worshiping by standing and praying aloud. Well, that particular Sunday, I sensed the pressure. By the way, I think Larry Crabb was part of the Plymouth Brethren Assemblies, just like General Dobby was, and, th and that would be a very typical thing, very pious, very devout. Get these young men up early uh, to pray. So he said, that particular Sunday, I sensed the pressure of the saints, not, I fear, the leading of the Spirit. And I responded by unsteadily leaving my chair for the first time with the intention of praying. Filled less with worship than with nervousness, I found my theology becoming confused to the point of heresy. I remember thanking the Father for hanging on the cross, uh, praising Christ for triumphantly bringing the Spirit up from the grave, and I stuttered throughout, and I finally thought of the word amen, perhaps the first evidence of the Spirit's leading. I said it, sat down, and I recall just staring at the floor, too embarrassed to look around and solemnly vowing never again to pray or speak aloud in front of a group of people. Two strikes were enough. When the service was over, he writes, I darted toward the door, not wishing to encounter any elder who might feel obliged to correct my twisted theology. But I wasn't quick enough. And an older Christian man named Jim Dunbar intercepted me, and he put his arm on my shoulder, he cleared his throat to speak, and I remember thinking to myself, here it comes. Oh, well, just endure it and then get into the car and go home. And then I listened to this godly gentleman speak words that I can repeat verbatim today, decades later. Larry, he said, there's one thing I want you to know. Whatever you do for the Lord, I'm behind you 1,000%. And then he turned and he walked away. And Crabb writes, even as I write these words, my eyes fill with tears. I have yet to tell that story to an audience without at least mildly choking up because, you see, these words were life to me. They had power.
they reach deep within my being. And my resolve, never again to speak publicly, weakened instantly. The power of an encouraging word. The power of blessing. When our conversation is over, and when we leave the presence of the person that we've been talking to or having lunch with or a cup of coffee with, have we left them refreshed and encouraged? Was there something in our words, in, in the way we said it, the, the attitude of our heart, the look on our face, some action that we did? Did we serve somebody and refresh them with words of encouragement? Will they be encouraged to love God just a little bit more, pursue truth just a little bit more, to keep carrying on just a little bit more? You know, as I go through this second bout of cancer, this prostate cancer, and I've got scans coming up and doctor consults and who knows what lays ahead. But it's, just, it's encouraging. You know, your words of encouraging. You've been on that receiving end. You pray for people, people pray for you. And you get encouraged, you get refreshed. You know, can you, again, imagine what Paul must have felt when he pulled his dead, almost dead carcass out of the Mediterranean Sea onto the beach at Malta. He, he had been hounded by Jewish people for years back when he was in prison in Caesarea. He, well, he was in prison for one thing. And then daily, weekly, month after month, he lived with the reality that these Jewish leaders were trying to plot to kill him. He had a price on his head. And then the, the shipwreck from, or the, or the journey from hell, you know, on the, on the Alexandrian grain ship, and they wreck on Malta and he's still a prisoner, and they barely get up, and they're crawling onto the beach, and all of a sudden, here come the Maltese people, and they start a fire, and they feed them, and they assist them, and the governor comes, and he, he, he entertains them and takes care of them. The encouragement that that must have been for three months, and then to go to Rome, and as they're heading to Rome, all of a sudden word has gotten out and, and believers are coming. They, they, Paul may have known some of them. He, he knew a lot of those people by name. The last chapter of Romans tells us that, Romans um, 16. But they come and they, they, they're at three taverns or um, uh, the, the, these little spots that they would stop and rest. And, and here were believers would show up, fellow believers. No wonder Paul says, I thanked God and I took courage. That's what God's people do. And God can even use the unsaved people, like these Maltese people. God, God was overseeing this whole process. And in the most desperate times, in the shipwrecks of life, God blesses and uses people, and they become encouragers. They refresh the souls. Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Paul says, acknowledge such people like this. Acknowledge it. Let me suggest here this morning that it's never too late to maybe send a note to that person who led you to the Lord. That Sunday school teacher, if they're still living, 
um, a note of appreciation of that, maybe that Bible uh, teacher from college or wherever, the, the, the people that crossed your paths in that timeline of life that we've encouraged you to, to fill out. Um, send a note of encouragement. Um, thank them for the ministry they've had in your life. Tell them that you're still walking with the Lord. Use that little note to refresh their spirits, whoever that might be. Or just sit down this afternoon or sometime this week and take some spiritual inventory of, of how well you're doing in that serving of the saints society. How well you are ministering and meeting the needs of others. It doesn't mean sitting down and necessarily acknowledging the things you're doing in the church, but maybe those behind the scenes, those, those, um, those encounters that are divinely appointed. Um, it, it, it can include things like rocking babies in the, the nursery, um, cleaning up after some event at the church or wherever, a helpful hand here, giving a meal to someone, helping with someone's repairs, taking care of widows and orphans in distress. It's helping out. It's, it's, it's baking the cinnamon rolls so that visitors can be blessed and enjoy something. It's, um, it's just taking time with your radar antenna up. In those conversations in the hallway, it's, it's just being a, a situationally aware of the people around you who just might need a word of encouragement. A pat on the back, um, an encouragement from God's word, not a pious platitude, but something genuine and real. It can be as simple, folks, as simple as sitting next to someone this morning and not knowing their name and turning around at the end of the service and introducing yourself. That can be an incredible word of encouragement right there. Serving the saints, it can be very hard work. Stephanos and his family understood that. But when it's spirit-energized hard work, when God is moving and working in your heart, and you are really simply an extension of Jesus who said, come on to me, all you who are heavy, weight, heavy laden, who are weary and burdened down. I will give you rest, said Jesus. And we, we, when we are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and are allowing Jesus to flow through us, he promises to use us to bring that refreshment, that encouragement, that... Um, that blessing to a weary soul. We thank God for what God has done over the years here at Fellowship Bible Church. I could spend an hour or two just telling you stories of, of blessings that people have done to other people in this congregation. It just, it's a testimony to God's grace. But let me repeat that. It's a testimony to God's grace. You see, it was God who had them shipwrecked on Malta. It was God who uh, moved upon those Maltese people to start the fire, to bring blessing and encouragement 
to those shipwrecked people. It was God who moved upon the believers as they were traveling the Appian Way towards Rome to, to come out and greet Paul so that he could be encouraged. God does those things. And at the right time, at the right moment, he brings the words of encouragement, the pats on the back, the I'm praying for you. Is there anything I can do for you? Is there something you need? How can I serve you? God does that because God loves us and he cares for us. And even though we find the shipwrecks of life not very pleasant to endure, and we drag our dead carcasses off that broken up ship to a beach that we have no idea where we are, all of a sudden, out of the trees and the bushes <laughs> come the blessings of God, coming from the hearts of God's people, the encouragement that we need, the rest for our souls. God does that because he loves us. That's who we worship today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you have provided for us, how you care for us and you know our weaknesses, you know our frame, we are dust. But you love us. You're a holy, as we've sung earlier, you're a holy, sovereign, transcendent God. But you care for us. You're worthy to be worshipped. As we look back, Father, over the, the events, those times of our life that we can recount, and we, we see your hand working. We see the refreshment that other believers have brought us or the circumstances of life that might not have been pl very pleasant for us, but then you infuse within that your grace and the comfort that comes from others. At the right time, you do that. You are a sovereign and good God, and we're so grateful. We're so grateful that we know you, that we love you, more importantly, that you love us. May we continue now, Father, to worship you who are worthy to receive our worship. In Christ's name.